in this passage, as we continue with chapter 3 of Philippians, contains the single most important reason for you being alive. I have been ill, not while I'm recovering. The week before last I was off, as many of you know, and uh, I didn't feel very alive at all um, during this time. But this chapter, this section, this first half of the chapter contains the very reason for you to be alive right now in this day and time, this place, this time, this era of world history. To know Christ, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ our Lord, has everything else secondary to that one thing. That's why Paul will go on in the second half we'll come to next week. He talks about pressing on to claim the prize, which is Christ. But it contains the most important thing that any human being can ever discover, to know Christ. And that means by implication that Christ wants to know you. In fact, Christ does know you. And the question is, do you know him? Because he's made you and he's called you. And it's very interesting that we have this command to rejoice. I'm very grateful, by the way, to Mike for covering um, the last couple of Sundays for me. I particularly enjoyed last week's sermon. And um, I was very encouraged and edified by listening to what you were saying, Mike. And as you said, as we chatted as well via text message, it's a very difficult thing for the pastor to say some of those things, and I'm really grateful. But Paul doesn't shy away from these truths, these great things, uh, because he knows who he is. He knows who Christ is. So last week, Mike outlined what Paul was saying in the second half of chapter 2. Paul was reassuring the church of his concern for them, and he was also acknowledging uh, the fact that they also had huge concern for him. And through illness and danger and uncertainty, he wants them to know that your friends seek your best interest. Chapter 2, verse 21. That's why chapter 3 begins with this great command. And it is a kind of... Um, oxymoron, so to speak. It's kind of a a strange thing to command somebody to do, to rejoice. Why would you need to be commanded to rejoice? It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because everything about God is all, all a bit serious, isn't it? And we've got to be prayerful and seriously minded. We've got to mind our P's and Q's. It's a very interesting thing to me that it says, as a command, rejoice. And again, I will say rejoice. And Paul will go into this in more detail again in chapter 4. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. You can't say this in an angry tone. You must rejoice, Janet. You must. Wipe that grumpy face off. Put on, that's better. Now we've got a happy face. I've got a convert. I've got a rejoicing convert. But you can't say it like that. Because there's something organic and natural about rejoicing. And you know the kind of people that you like to be around. They generally show the qualities of joy and rejoicing in their life and in their faith. It is a spiritual principle of the Christian life that gospel joy transcends every single personal circumstance that we go through. 
That's why Paul can praise when he's chained to a prison wall. It's why Paul can talk about rejoicing. If you remember in the book of Acts, he got driven out of Philippi and stoned almost to death after preaching the gospel in this town. And yet he talks to them about joy. Because it's probably a quality in all of their serious living, the type of society that it was, that joy was the thing that had been robbed from them. And so he shows that Christian joy transcends all of this. So in this sense, nobody can rob you of your joy. Has anyone ever robbed you of your joy? (laughs) They have. We're all guilty, aren't we? We've fallen for the trick. We've been robbed of our joy, and uh, we, uh, and we, we know this is the case. But it feels like that often for us, doesn't it? Maybe there's a sharp tongue or a disapproving look, or maybe someone has just sort of marginalized you on the periphery of their relationship with you, or maybe it's a personal attack or whatever it might be. And we all face these things in our relationships, that's true, but Christ transcends this because of what the psalmist, well, what David says in Psalm 63, which is one of my favorite psalms. Possibly, it was just life-saving a few years ago to me when the psalmist says, your love is better than life. Wow. Your love is better than life. And so Paul is teaching the Philippians that despite all of their reasonable grounds for concern, and they should be concerned, Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, a lack of joy in the Christian life, a lack of rejoicing in the Lord, in Christ, is never the outcome of their fortunes. It's not because everything has gone well, therefore I will rejoice, but it is a fact within their fortunes. Whatever happens in life and death, in plenty or in need, in pain and sorrow and suffering and grief, and illness, and persecution. None of these things, and I know I'm the biggest hypocrite here in saying this, none of these things should ever rob the Christian of their joy. None of these things. Amen? And we, I think we know this. Which is what makes verse 2 all the more shocking. Verse 1, he says, Finally, Rejoice in the Lord. To write these things to you is no trouble for me. Watch out for the dogs. Rejoice in the Lord. Watch out for the dogs. Rejoice in the Lord, church. Watch out for the dogs. It's not mine. Let's see if I can get the right button here. Nailin, thank you for lending this to me. Is it on? Is it coming through? Yes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Watch out for the dogs. Because the dogs will steal your joy. Who are the dogs? Very strong language, isn't it? It's astonishing. Very strong language. Dogs never come out of things well in the ancient world, either in the Middle East now or back then. It's always a term of derision of some kind. And the word 
watch out for the dogs, refers to a scavenger dog, a street dog, a a potentially violent, unpredictable, untamed dog, what they call a mooch pooch. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Oh, I could love a mooch pooch myself, but it's, it's referring to these scavenger dogs. Now, when I was a missionary in Egypt, we, we got a pup, a golden retriever puppy. Now, we were green behind the ears, not wet behind the ears. We were green. And we were learning that actually Egyptian culture is typical of the Middle Eastern culture. It's not a dog-loving culture necessarily, and there are street dogs. We've been to places where there are street dogs, and they stay in packs, they often sleep most of the day, and, uh, and you want to make sure that they are sleeping when you go past them. But when you have a dog yourself, a little beautiful golden retriever puppy, Lizzie, my pride and joy, she's gone now, but it drew their attention to us. They were interested, and it was territorial, right? So I was extremely threatened as I walked the dog probably two or three kilometers to the school for the children. So I've got three children, little energetic, strong puppy, golden retriever, and the street dogs to contend with. So what did I do? I got myself a strong stick, I taped a knife to the end of it, and I used that as my protection in the potential of an attack, which I never had to use, by the way. Thank you, Lord, for that. That would have been chaos. But it got so serious for us, I had no other option uh, other than to do this for our protection because these dogs were so unpredictable. Paul is referring to the false teachers who are coming in after him and undermining the gospel by saying that any Gentile believer in Christ must, by default, follow the law of Moses, must, for the men, become circumcised. And, uh, and so Judaize the Christian faith. But Paul says no. And last week, Mike mentioned the, uh, the tricolon in chapter 2, verse 25, when he talked about brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. So if Mike can do it, I'm going to tricolon this myself. Paul now deploys another one in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs... Look out for the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Really strong language here that he's using. And when it comes to the defense of the gospel and the protection of the church, Paul is very strong. He's meeting fire with fire. There's nothing genteel about the language here that Paul is using, such as his fierce, protective nature for the church this young 10-year-old church. John Calvin, on this passage 500 years ago, said, Beware the dogs. They assailed true doctrine with their foul barking. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's not foul, is it? But you know foul barking when you meet an angry, violent street dog who's basically either protecting pups or wanting food. It's a very dangerous and serious thing. Beware the dogs. They assail true doctrine with their foul barking. So Paul is he's not being a dainty, goody-two-shoes religious guy at this point, just saying the nice platitudes to get them through. 
He is a man who knows of what he speaks. Because he too was that dog. Paul was that dog that he's talking about. He was that evildoer, that mutilator of the flesh. And Paul was the best dog of all. He was better than everybody at being this kind of person. Paul was the best top dog, the best bulldog. Paul was the best attack dog against the church. And he knows of what he speaks. And so this is precisely what Paul now goes on to prove. He had all the credentials more than anybody else combined at this time. And his whole point, of course, is that Christianity is the fulfillment of and the reality to Judaism. It's the fulfillment of all of these things. It's not a shadow of these things. It is the actual reality of these things. And even the law of Moses itself, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, for example, commanded circumcision of the heart as the reality of religion. Right in the heart of the law of Moses, we see the reality of the Christian faith coming out, where God says, circumcise your hearts to God. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. The prophets also spoke about this as well. Ezekiel and Jeremiah talking about a spiritual reality, a profound truth of what it means to be consecrated to God, what it means to come to faith in Christ, what it means to know the surpassing greatness of Christ. So Paul says this was who he was, and he has more grounds to boast than anybody else. So he deploys, Mike, forgive me for this, another tricolon. 2-1 to me now. In verses 5 and 6, he says, As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Paul said, I was blameless. I was perfect. And I went after these Christians like an attack dog. Law, zeal, and righteousness. And here's the worst kept secret in the history of everything from the beginning of time and the ground of all Christian joy. Paul says in verse 7, Whatever was to my profit, I count everything loss for the sake of Christ. Wow. Whatever was to my profit, I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, verse 8, he says, I thought that these things made me great. I thought being a religious, zealous Pharisee made me great, and I thought that it, it, that it made me look, look great to God as well, like I was impressing Him. And this is no exaggeration to say that Paul then goes on to say, but all of this supposed greatness is just waste. It's just, the word Paul uses is dung, feces, rubbish, garbage. Everything that I thought I had before is all of these things compared to knowing Christ. And that's why he uses these words 
to silence the attack dogs of he, that he's mentioned in verse 2. And the Greek word for dogs here is, is the Greek word skybalon. comes from two words that are put together, dog and throw. Because you throw your waste, your scraps, your garbage to the dogs. And Paul says everything, everything is waste compared to knowing Christ. It's the filthy scraps of what you throw to the filthy dogs. So Paul counts everything as joy because Christ transcends everything about his life. Everything. There's nothing. There's no stone unturned. And this is a huge challenge for us. To what degree could we say that about ourselves? What areas of our life is the surpassing greatness of Christ just kept to the edges of our life? It's a huge challenge for us. Because false religion and distortions of biblical Christianity, insecure identity, love of the the applause of people, love of comfort, they're all scraps, they're all waste, they're all garbage that are only fit to be thrown out to the attack dogs. And so what's the goal? Paul comes to the goal in verse 9. This is the goal of your life. It's the goal of this church. It has to be. Is there anything more important than this? Verse 9, to gain Christ, to be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness that comes from the law. No, not my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. And so the righteousness that we have comes from God and He's given it to us by faith. He takes our rags, our dung, our waste, our garbage. He takes that upon Himself and gives us His robe of righteousness. That's the Christian story. That's the most important thing. To gain Christ. And it is this that causes us to know Christ as it says in verses 10 and 11. To know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Church, if you believe in Christ this morning, you are filled with the same power, the Spirit of God, that raised Christ from the dead. That's the promise of the Gospel. And that enables you to transcend your circumstances, whatever they may be. And a lot of us are going to have some very challenging circumstances in the next year or two or three or five or ten or twenty. You know, it's never-ending, isn't it? Dig into Christ. Don't let it rob you of your joy. And Mary, thank you for leading us in the way you did with intercessions as well, reminding us what Paul wrote to Timothy. Absolutely marvelous. And it's so easy to be overwhelmed when we often find ourselves praying for the same things on the global stage, on the national stage. But church, I want to say this. Jesus Christ is still King. Amen? And His Gospel is still true. Put that on your fridge. Put it in your heart. 
Jesus Christ is still king and his gospel is still true. And so therefore, because we have this power in us, Paul can then say that by sharing in sufferings, we have the privilege of becoming like Christ in his death. So that we can then attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, none of us here have died. We've died to sin. We have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. It's glorious, isn't it? Isn't it glorious? And so to the proud Philippians now as as we finish, we've got to think about their context. Their greatness, their self-inflated view of themselves doesn't matter one iota at all. Their military status, their um, secure financial life, the privileges that they have as a Roman colony with special status doesn't matter one iota at all. The pride that comes with this is overturned and overruled by the gospel. Their protection under the Roman Empire doesn't matter. The things that they naturally put their trust in is overturned in the kingdom of God. It's astonishing. Now, the British army, I've got to be careful here, Mark, right? Is it still the slogan, be the best? Is that still the current slogan? It's all right, isn't it? Be the best is pretty good. Are you the best? Your Navy. (laughs) Oh, no. What's the slogan for the Navy? Do they have one? Is it spelled S-E-A as well? See the world differently? No? No. (laughs) But the Army, the British Army, has a slogan, be the best. Be the best. Love it. I want to be the best. Do you want to be the best? But that's not my identity. Not at all. Not one iota. But it's still good to strive for these things. We should all strive to excel in the field that God has placed us in, for sure. But we must never confuse this for a substitute for who we are in Christ. Never. That's the primary thing. Who are you when everything else is gone? Who are you? I'll tell you, held, redeemed, sins paid for, atoned for, loved, protected by your heavenly Father. Why is that so difficult to understand? Some of you have heard this stuff for years, and yet today you need to hear it again as though you're drinking for the first time in three or four days in the desert. You need to know that. Not just know it, but you need to know it. This is the most important thing to know. This is the ground for Paul's joy. It's the reason for the Christian's joy. And it's the secret to the Christian life. You can all go away this afternoon, have your lunchtime meals, and assess, assess 
your Christian life. Despite circumstances, and everyone struggles with these things, by and large, but a, a, compare it to the measure of Christ and his love for you, and you will be blown away. I want to finish with a story of a French painter. Anyone heard of Pierre-Auguste Renoir, 19th and early 20th century painter? Anyone got any of his paintings? No? As an old man, he, um, he suffered from really terrible arthritis in his hands. And his friend, Matisse, asked him, Pierre, I don't know why they speak English, Pierre, why do you keep painting when you are in such pain? Because he kept painting through the pain and the agony of his arthritic hands. Pierre replied, because the pain passes, but the beauty remains. That's your life. That's it. And Dave, it's great to see you here today. Great to see you here. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. And for others, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. Because God's in the business of not allowing the locust to devour our lives. And he will restore us and repay all the years that the locusts have eaten. And for some, the locusts have been pretty busy in recent years. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. And so God says to us, he says, my beloved children, to you, my beloved children, the pain you go through will pass, but my beauty will remain forever. Therefore, brothers and sisters, here this morning at TBC, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, all glory to Jesus Christ. Father, sink this word deep into our hearts, Lord, that the living and active word of Scripture will be proven true in our lives, Father. We praise and glorify your holy name. Amen.